Amen. All right, so I can't believe it, but it's been roughly about 14 years since I've been in ministry. Now, some of you actually saw me get saved and saw me come through all that, so it's been a long time. And in the 14 years that I've been serving the Lord, the number one question I have gotten throughout the course of that time is this, what does God want with me? I think that is the number one question or close to the number one question that most pastors get is what is God's will for my life? What is my purpose? Why am I here? What does God actually want to do with me? I know he, what he wants to do with you, pastor, but what is he trying to do with me? People are always asking the question, what is my role with God and his kingdom? And the Bible makes it very, very clear that number one, God's will will always be accomplished. There is no force, no power, no conglomerate, no being. Nothing can stop God from his will being done. We know this to be absolutely true. Number two, God wants you to participate. God could have created angels. He could have created some other being that we have no idea about. He could have created anything to allow his glory and allow his plans and his purposes to be fulfilled on this earth. But who did he choose? You. Mankind, men and women made in God's image according to his likeness. Now, God's will will be done. God purposes to use you. And number three, because of that, God's will is not a mystery. It's not a secret. He is telling us very, very, very plainly in black and white what he wants you to do with your life. The reality is, is most of us don't really understand or don't care enough to actually apply what he wants. God's mystery, we don't have to scale Mount Everest. We don't have to plumb the depths of the abyss. We don't have to don on a white robe and contemplate our navel. We don't have to seek some guru. We don't have to do any of those things to know what God wants from us. But if you think that he's going to, like he did with Jesus, from the heavens, speak to you in an audible voice and tell you exactly what he wants each and every time you're fooling yourself. God is very clear. He's already told you. Now it's our job to apply. So when it comes to God's will, we have a general, which is this is God's will for all of his people. He wants all of these generalized things to be happening. And then because you have your own set of DNA and your own fingerprint and your own tongue print and heel print, and you are completely unique. He has a very specific will for your life, a purpose for your life that nobody else on earth has. This is your job. So this morning, I want us to look at God's general will for my life, your life, and then we're going to look at the specifics. Am I supposed to marry that woman? Am I supposed to move out of state? Am I supposed to go to Thailand? Is God calling me to the ministry? Is God wanting us to have kids? So on and so forth. Very specific questions, right? If I turn to 1 Peter 3, it's not going to say Chris moved to Thailand. There's not going to be those very specific answers, but God specifically is going to tell you what he wants. How does he do that? This morning, we're going to find out. So we're going to look at four general things, specifics that God wants for your life and then how that translates into God telling you specifically how and what and where and, and who and all these other things of life that he wants you to do. So what is God's will for your life, for me? Let's find out. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. 
starting at verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 15 through 21. Now, if you think of God's will as a recipe, here's ingredient number one. This is the first cup in the batter, if you will, to be able to know and perform God's will. The very first step is found here in this text, and I'll give it to you. God's will for your life is that you be filled with His Spirit. That's the very first ingredient for the will of God in my life is that you be filled with His Spirit. So let's read it, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit." speaking to one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we begin at the very beginning in verse 15 with the walk. Now the Bible, when it talks about walking, is not necessarily meaning you putting one step in front of the other. When the Bible talks about walk, what is it referring to? Conduct. So if I'm walking in the Spirit, that means that my conduct in life, that means what I say, who I hang around with, what I do in my time, my conduct is spiritual, godly. It is characterized by the same characteristics of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and self-control. When I'm operating in these things or walking in the Spirit, the character of the Spirit is shown in my life because I'm a peaceful person, a loving person, a caring and good person, so on and so forth. So when I'm walking in the flesh, what does that mean? That my conduct is characterized by what? By the worldly old nature. So Paul is saying, be careful how you walk or how you live your life. The things you do, the things you say, who you associate with, when nobody else is watching, the websites you go on, be careful. Conduct yourself not as a, as a foolish person, but as a wise man. Now here, specifically, what is the difference between the fool and the wise man in our text here? The fool does not know what? Look at verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but... Now, the but is a contrast. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is the foolish person doing? They have no idea what God's will is for their life. So now what happens? Look at verse 16. Making the most of your time because of the days are evil. If you don't know what God's will is for your life, you cannot make the most of your time or maximize your opportunity on earth. Why? Because you're just going here and there and everywhere. There's absolutely no direction. So the foolish person, even though they may be saved, is the one that may be sitting at church for 40 years who never really does anything. They get saved, they get baptized, and then the question is, now what? And so we sit for 40 years hoping that God somehow speaks from the heavens to tell me what to do. Well, the Bible tells you what to do. Number one, don't not understand God's will, but rather be spirit-filled or know what God's will is. 
And he says it this way, which is interesting in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So if you have another translation, the word dissipation, what is it? what does it say in your book? Debauchery. And that is really the most accurate rendering. Don't get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Now, here's why that's so important to Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was the Greek god Dionysus or the Roman god Bacchus. Notice the English word debauchery. The god Bacchus was the god of wine and ecstasy. And so the people in Ephesus who would worship Dionysus, the Greek god, or Bacchus, the Roman god, what they would do is they would get drunk, they would eat as much as they can possibly eat, and then they would go around and have sex with as many people as they could. And that was the worship to Bacchus. <clears throat> it was called the Bacchanalian Feast. Now, my favorite, absolute favorite place to eat in Las Vegas is a place called Caesar's Palace, which is thematically ancient Rome, which is exactly the New Testament era. There in Caesar's Palace, you can go to a buffet and they have all you can eat lobster tails and all you can eat meat and all you can eat everything. You can eat excess until you explode. Do anybody know what that, that famous uh, buffet in Las Vegas is called? The Bacchanal. Where do they get that from? The Bacchanal was these worships or these festivities to the Roman god Bacchus, where you eat as much as you can, and then the Romans would go and they have their own little hole, and then they would vomit all their food up, and then they would come back into the this uh, torium, and then they would begin to eat their all-you-can-eat again. It was a place of just excess, and that's the idea, and this is why Paul is saying, don't go down that road of being drunk, of eating and drinking and then being merry, which the biblical idea of being merry is not being happy. It's drunk fornication. That was what was going on in that area of Ephesus. He says, don't go back to the old world where you're drunk and then you're losing control and having sex with a lot of people. Why are we told to not drink and drive? Well, why? Why do you kill yourself or kill others? Because I've, I've, back in the days, I drank and I drove and I never killed anybody. But why do they tell you to, to drink and not drive? Yeah, because what does alcohol do? Exactly. And, and Josh hit it dead on the head. Control. And this is the goal. This is the thrust of what God is telling you here by being spirit-filled. Who in your life is going to control you? Is the Spirit of God going to control you or other spirits going to control you? Is God the Father going to control you or Johnny Walker or Captain Morgan going to control you? That's the real thing. Are you going to relinquish control to something or someone else or are you relinquishing control to God? That's the heart of this passage. So who are we relinquishing control to? God's Spirit. The will of God for your life is that the Spirit of God possesses you. Now, we always talk about spirit possession in a negative sense, but from the positive sense, the Holy Spirit is to possess you, is to have your mind, is to have your heart, and you are to say, yes, Lord. That's the goal. That's the drive, and that's the idea. Now, here's our test. If I don't know what God's will is for my life, 
number one, I have to ask myself, am I filled with the Spirit? Or does the Holy Spirit control my life? And if the answer is no, I do nothing else but work on this step. Step two, three, four is is irrelevant until I work on this step. So here's our test. Number one, are you a joy-filled person? Does does joy just emanate from you? Because notice verse 19. When you're spirit-filled, you will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So number one, are you a joy-filled person? Why is joy one uh, requirement or one observation of being spirit-filled? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love and what? So obviously joy is going to manifest itself in your life. Are you a joy-filled person? Number two, do you always give thanks? Or are you a grateful person? In the good, the bad, and the ugly, do you give thanks to God? If the answer is yes, that's good. If the answer is no, you cannot be spirit-filled. Number three, and subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What does that mean? You are sacrificially serving other people. Now, I know you guys are great at mathematics. So tell me, what verse comes directly after verse 21? So verse 21, he says, here's how you know you'll be spirit-filled. You will sacrificially serve other people. And immediately, he goes right into wives, be subject to your own husbands as the Lord. So a spirit-filled woman is marked by one who submits willingly and lovingly to her husband. If she does not, there is a 0.0% chance she's walking in the spirit and she's spirit-filled. Cannot be. Then we go to husbands. Husbands, love your wives like like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands, if you're spirit-filled, you'll be doing that. If you don't love your wife like Christ loved the church, then it's a 0.0% chance that you are filled with the Spirit. Then in chapter 6 and verse 1, children, obey your parents. Sacrificially serve your parents. So if you're a child and you're not obeying your parents, it is a 0.0% chance you're actually filled with the Spirit. And then he goes to slaves and masters. Slaves uh, serve your master as unto the Lord. And if you go to your employer and you steal from your employer and so on and so forth, it's proof that you're not actually filled with the Spirit. So here's the test. And if you pass the test, then praise God, we go to step two. If you didn't pass the test, then we stay on step one. This is the prerequisite. It's like a, a baking recipe. You have to follow it. If you just do in all your random things, it's probably not going to work out. It has to be in this order. So am I spirit-filled? And here's the real question. How does one know if they obey the Spirit of God or not? Because now we, this is so far kind of subjective, and now we're getting very objective and very black and white. There's no gray area. How does one know if I'm actually filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, and doing what the Spirit has called me to do? How would one know? By your actions, okay, what else? How you respond to the world around you, go on. These are all good, keep going. 
So how do we know how we're, we're supposed to respond or abstain from the world? Or how do we know how to bear fruit? Where do we gain that information from? From the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Now turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to see something very, very um, important here. Notice being filled with the Spirit, you're going to have overwhelming joy, you're going to have overwhelming gratitude, and you're sacrificially going to be serving other people. Now look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. This is how you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're actually obeying the Spirit so that you can be filled by Him. Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. So the word of Christ, and the word Christ there is not actually shown. It just means the word or the word of God. Let the word of God richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishment. One Admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing in thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that sound familiar? Where did we just read that from? Ephesians chapter 5, and then he goes on, and he says in verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So unexpressible joy, unexpressible gratitude. Where's the service? So mathematicians, what verse comes directly after verse 17? Verse 18, look what Paul says. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Verse 22, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Is it not the same thing? So being filled with the Spirit and having the Word of God dwelling richly in your life are synonymous terms. Who wrote the Bible? God the Holy Spirit. So how are you to be controlled by the Spirit? You are simply obeying what the Spirit has said. And this is how you objectively know. You say yes to the things God has commanded you. You say no to the things God has not commanded you. And now you know. And when you do right and you don't do wrong, God fills you to the point where you're overflowing and now He possesses you. See, every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit, but not every Christian allows the Holy Spirit to possess them. That's the big one. And most of us just go through life and we never bear fruit because we don't know what the heck is going on. We are just sheep simply going through the motions. And think about it. How long have you been saved? One year, five years, ten years, decades? What have you done for God? Where's the fruit? And if, and if it's not there, then it may be because we don't know what he wants from us. So number one, we are to be spirit filled. That means controlled by the spirit. Now let's move to number two. Here's the second recipe in our, uh, cook for knowing God's will. First Thessalonians chapter four, starting at verse three. If you want to turn there, first Thessalonians chapter four and starting at verse Three. What is God's will for my life? I have no idea. Well, here you go. Verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Does it get any more black and white than that? God is telling you what his will is for your life. 
and his will for your life is sanctification. Now, when the Bible talks sanctification, there's two ideas. The first one, the Bible could be talking about the process of sanctification. And that's kind of your second step in salvation. You get born again, you're baptized, and now you're in that maturation process where you go from being a little newborn babe in Jesus and you're growing into a mature adult just like Jesus. That's sanctification. That's not really Paul's driving thought here. He's more describing what sanctification means. And what sanctification means is to be set apart for a holy purpose. That's what it means. You are different from everyone else, everything else, because God took you and he put you on this pile. And he says, you're different because I have a special plan for you. That's the idea of sanctification. Go back to the Old Testament. Remember the religious system? It was the law of whom? Moses. And it was a very religious system. Even in that system, God sanctified it or, or consecrated it to himself. For example, in the sacrificial system of, of Moses' time, who can be a priest? Can anybody just show up and fill out an application? So number one, it had to be a male. Number two, it couldn't just be any male. It had to be a Jewish male. And then number three, it couldn't just be any Jewish male. They had to come from a specific tribe and be called. So this is God consecrating or sanctifying the priesthood to himself. They were created for a unique, special purpose to bring him glory and serve them. And then the priests, did they take the sacrifices and just do it anywhere? Where? Where did it happen? In the temple. Now is the temple sanctified to God or set apart to be holy? Absolutely. When Solomon prayed and dedicated it, God Shekinah filled it, and that meant God was there and he was nowhere else. Now that building was sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose unto the Lord. And then did the priests, when the people brought the animals in, did they go grab their steak knives and the, the cereal bowls that they ate the, the, their food the morning? No. They had consecrated, special, sanctified tools. The knives were specifically created for the purpose of that sacrifice. The bowl, everything was created for that purpose. It was clean, it was set apart, and it was for the purpose of bringing God glory. Now Paul is saying, Christian, you are the tool in God's hand. Remember, why were you saved? Ephesians 2.10. For the purpose of God's workmanship, for doing good works which he prepared beforehand. Listen, you are the instrument in God's hand. And you're the instrument you are to be pure, holy, and unstained. God will not use dirty tools. If the priest saw the knife and it was dirty, it would be cast away. And a new, clean, sanctified knife would do the work for God. God isn't in the business of having his holy hands over dirty tools. He wants to use a pure and a clean and a holy instrument to bring him glory. What is Paul saying? God's will for you is don't get polluted through immoralities. Keep yourself clean. Now, specifically, two things. Sexual immorality and hurting your neighbor. 
Those two things are proof that you are in wrong. So turn to Philippians 4 uh, and verse 3, and we'll start reading. For this is God's will for you, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Number one, when God says he wants you to be holy so he can use you, don't make yourself polluted through sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is is expressing any kind of sexuality towards anyone who is not your spouse. If you're married, that means you can commit adultery. If you're single, that means you commit fornication. They both fall into the same group of sexual immorality. And God is deadly serious when it comes to sexual immorality. He does not play around. And one thing I can promise you, if you want your ministry to be doomed, keep sleeping around. If you want your life to be all screwed up, keep sleeping around. If you want your yourself to just be enslaved and never reach what God has for you, keep going on those websites. You just keep toying with God and He will humble you. That break may be gentle or that may break may be where He breaks you and alters all of your life. But you best be careful. Don't play with God. Don't play with fire. The idea that just the tip works is a stupid idea. You do this stuff, you're going to get burned. You will get STDs. You will get people pregnant, and then you have to deal with, am I going to slaughter now an innocent child? All things, all negative things can come through fornication and immorality. God says, do not stain yourself. Now, why is he so serious about this? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we get insight to why God is so serious about sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and starting at verse 15. Now, when we think of sex, we think of just a physical interaction. When God talks about sex, it is much more. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So when you got saved and you said, Jesus, here I am, Jesus comes in you and you are placed in him. Now two flesh are become one. Do you not know when you join yourself to Jesus, you've now joined yourself to him. When you got saved, you and him are one, one flesh. Verse 16, or do you not know, or uh, members of Christ, verse 15b, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And he, there is the strongest form of Greek. He says, God forbid, or what a horrible thought. And what he's saying is, should I take Jesus, whom I'm joined to, and now have a threesome with a prostitute? Should I take the God of glory and subject him to my filthy immorality? And the strongest Greek term, he says, God, may it never be. I'm even sorry for writing that down. Am I going to take Jesus and now fornicate and join him to somebody who's not my spouse? When you have sex outside of marriage, when you lust after a girl on your website, that's exactly what you're doing. There's no wiggle room. There's no gray area. God is so serious about this. And he goes on in verse 17. Sorry, verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is, is one body with her? 
For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Here's the command. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been brought, bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God, why is he so serious about this? He's telling you because you're joining prostitutes or others with him, and then you're degrading yourself. He says, don't do it. It's going to cause massive problems. Don't go down the sexual immorality road. And here, here's a, for you single people. If a man, it's a single women, if a man tells you, I want to make love to you, here's a translation from a man. What he's really saying is, I love me, and I sort of like you, and I'm going to take from you and feed my lusts. That's what's really being said. Oh, I want to make love with you. No, he wants to rob from you because he doesn't have the wherewithal to put a ring on it. Because really, you're not that important to him. Because if you were, he would say no. Because that's how much he respects you. When you rob and you play house and you take, it's proof that you really don't love the person more than you love yourself. Here's another truth. Women, the man will never buy the cow if you give the milk for free. He will never take you home, put a ring on it, have to take care of you, have the responsibilities and all the rest if you're out in the marketplace giving all your milk for free. Why? He gets all the reward with none of the risk. Why subject yourself to being that low when God has made you so beautiful? Why subject yourself to that level? Because he'll take from you and then he'll go to the next and take from them and go to the next and take from you. And there you are just given of yourself. Did you know that if when a man ejaculates in a woman, that man's DNA lodges in her organs the rest of her life? His DNA is lodged in her liver the rest of her life. Two flesh, even scientifically, become one. So if you go around and sleep with 10 different men and then you get married, you're bringing 11 people into this relationship plus Jesus. This is the, the things that God is saying, we want you to be pure. Don't scandalize yourself through sexual immorality. And it goes back to what we talked about with money. When you, when you sleep around before getting married, what it really is is instant gratification. I just need, need, need now. Until you can defer gratification, you'll never be successful in anything you do in life. You defer gratification, you do things God's way, and then he will honor you for it. So we are to be consecrated or sanctified by not falling into sexual immorality. And then number two, uh, there in verse eight. Oh, I'm sorry, in, uh, where are we at here? Chapter four. Okay, verse six, there we go. And here's the second one. So don't fall into sexual immorality. Here's number two. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, 
but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the second thing is hurting your neighbor. Now, Jesus uh, told the story about the Good Samaritan, and they asked, well, who is my neighbor? And the answer was, whomever God puts in your path. That's your neighbor, and you love them, and you meet their needs, and you try to do good by them. It's the idea of paying it forward, right? We want to bless them, honor them, pay it forward. Now, when it comes to living an impure life, what we do is we take our brother and then we transgress and defraud them. Now, the two things about that, transgression is a willing sin. So you can sin and not know it, and then God reveals it to you, and you're like, oh, my God, I didn't know that was sin, my bad. But a transgression is I know this is wrong, and I'm doing it anyway. It's a willful slip-up. And then defrauding your brother. When you fraud somebody, you're obviously intentional, right? There's a premeditation to it. You're copying documents. You're putting together a story. You're causing a premeditation to hurt and rob someone. In both sexual immorality and defrauding or transgressing your brother, it's premeditated. You don't just happen. There's a plan to it. There's a thought behind it. There's already things in place. So what does God say? Number one, I want you to be controlled by my spirit. And number two, I want you to remain pure. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Don't get your feet all dirty. Don't get muddy. Don't be unuseful to me. You just try to stay pure. Here's number three. Turn to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4 and starting at verse 12. Now this is one that we probably never thought of when it comes to what's God's will for my life. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may be, you may rejoice with exultation. And if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you and make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Here we go, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, wow, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. What is God's will for you in this in this? section that you suffer now who here woke up and was like man i really want to accomplish god's will today hopefully they're suffering but this is a part of the process god says my will for you is that you would suffer but notice the suffering is not for doing evil if you're a murderer or a thief or a reviler and you get caught and you get punished, there's no righteousness in that. You did the crime, you do the time. You sowed, you reap. 
this is exactly what the Bible says. But if you're doing everything right and the school district fires you for having a Bible on your desk or refusing to put up the pride flag, if you're doing everything right and you're reviled and you're suffering and you're, you're, you're being fired and rejected and hated by the world for good, well, then God says, then that is the suffering that I will you to have. And we're going to look at some reasons why here. So Paul says, with those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. So there's three ways in which the Christian can suffer. Way number one, we'll call it the various trials of life. And this is what every other human being suffers. Can Christians have cancer? Can Christians lose their children and have to bury them? Can Christians lose their spouses, their jobs, their homes? Everything. We can lose just like the unbelieving world can lose. We can suffer just like the unbelieving world can suffer. We can pain and experience loss just like the rest of the world. God does not promise you health, wealth, and prosperity. God does not promise you a comfortable life. God does not promise you an easy time. In fact, the exact opposite. So one, we can just struggle through everyday life. Number two, spiritual warfare. Why did Job suffer all the things that he suffered? He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his fortune. He lost his lands. He lost his health. He lost everything. Why? Because the devil went to God and said, hey, if you take all those things from him, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, all right, you're wrong. Spiritual warfare. He went through all of that for spiritual warfare. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and starting at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. So this is a, a, a demon to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that it, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we battle all the same things the unbelievers battle. We battle a demonic world in which the powers that be hate you and despise you and want to kill you. And then number three, persecution. The Christian suffers and will suffer persecution. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You'll never find this on a, in a Christian calendar or a Christian mug or Christian posters. All the Jesus junk that we make money off of, you don't find this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me in Antioch. 
and at Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Remember Paul? He was going through those towns and they stoned him to death. They drug him out the city. They supposed him to be dead. All the Christians were crying around his dead body and then he just wakes up from his coma. He dusts himself off and he says, let's go right back into the same city and preach. That was this guy. But anyway, he's talking about his inflictions. And now here's a promise to all Christians. And this is a promise that I hate. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise of God. Just like God will save you and God will never leave you or forsake you. Here's another promise that's guaranteed. If you live godly, you're going to be persecuted. If you live for Jesus, people will hate you. And when I first got saved and I was preaching at the parks and somebody wanted to kill me, I was so shocked and I was so like, I was so naive thinking everybody was like, Oh, of course we want this message. And when somebody denied it and hated me for it and reviled me for it and wanted to hurt me for it, it was a shock. And the pastor's wife had to pull me aside and say, they don't hate you. They hate the Christ you serve. And when you can understand that, that when people ridicule you and hate you and attack you and attack your God, it's not personal. Not really. They hate the God you serve with a passion. And so the only way they can get to him because their arms are too short to box with God is to go through you. And so they kill you in order to get to him. But persecution is an absolute necessity and an absolute promise of God. So Christians, we will suffer. Guaranteed. Here's my question to you. Why does God allow it? Those are the answers. It tests you and proves your faith. Turn to First Peter 1. First Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. We greatly rejoice that God saved us. Jesus uh, sacrificed for us. The Spirit sanctifies us. And then, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? Verse seven. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as an outcome for your faith the salvation of your souls. Why is these kind of distresses, uh, suffering for good, necessary? What is God doing? He's proving not only to him, he already knows your heart, he's proving to you that you actually trust him. 
And then what stems from that? The reality that you're actually saved. Now imagine this. Imagine I get fired from my job and now I, I, I don't have uh, income and now I'm, I'm going through the ringer and I might have to sell stuff to, to cover the cost all because I did good and I glorified God and because of that very thing, they, they fired me. I can sit back even though with no job and I can say, huh, I just proved to myself that I'm really in the faith. And if I'm really in the faith, I'm really saved. What kind of joy then does that bring? Because if you really believe that when you take your last breath, you're going to be with the Lord, nothing is going to rock you. Really. When you actually believe it with your whole heart, that when I die, I'm with Jesus. And I've proven that in my actions. When I've proven that to be true, you have the blessed assurance and nothing and nobody can knock you off. You have something that that very few in all the world have. And that is a pure, blessed assurance that God is in absolute control of today, tomorrow, and forever. And that gives you the peace and the comfort and the strength that you need no matter what comes down your way. So it helps us to, to prove our faith and thus allow us to know that we know that we're saved. Now turn to James chapter 1. Here's the second reason why. It makes you stronger. It makes you better. It makes you go further. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, the various trials of life, persecutions, um, sufferings because of spiritual warfare, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So think of faith as a muscle. How do you get big muscles? You have to cause trauma. Your muscles have to go through suffering. They must be broken down and then they're built back stronger. And when the muscle comes back stronger, it can lift more, it can lift longer, it can go farther. And the more you break down and the more you build back up, the stronger you become. The more you suffer for doing good, the stronger you will become. Why? Because you'll get to the place of Paul where you realize the weaker I am, the stronger I am. So the more that comes my way, the stronger I'll inevitably be. The more must, the more weight I lift, the bigger I'm going to become. And so suffering actually becomes a positive and not a negative. It becomes a pro and not a con. And this is how we can have joy all the time, which takes us to now the fourth point. This is the fourth step and the last one of God's will for you. And that is say thanks in all things. Now the all things means the really good times. You give God thanks and you don't say it's because I did this. And in the really, really bad times, you give God thanks and you don't say, look what you have done. In everything, you give thanks. Turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You notice how the Bible actually is telling us what God's will is for our life. This is not a mystery. God's will for your life is that you would be grateful. You would have overwhelming joy and gratitude. 
Now, we said this a few months back. When you have a tongue, a mouth that is thanking and praising God, it shows that your heart is doing what? Do you remember that? You can say a good job. Trusting in God. Now, if I'm going through really bad times and I believe God's in control and He's all-powerful and all-knowing and He loves me and He knows what's going to happen and He's in control of all things and I simply say, Lord, I believe You. Lord, I trust You. Lord, I thank You for this time. Is that not proof that you're really walking with Him? I mean, Job, for example. Satan prompted him to curse God and die. His wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And yet the Bible says, yet Job never with his mouth sinned against the Lord. Incredible. Why? Because a thanksgiving tongue, a, a tongue that is grateful to God, shows a rock steady, a rock hard faith. It's proof. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what does God do? The very next verse, he says, you were foreknown, predestined, and you're going to glorification. And then the rest of the chapter, and nothing, not even Satan himself, can separate you from Christ. This is why the all things work together for good, because ultimately we're going to heaven, and Satan cannot do anything about it. This is why no matter what happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God causes it for good. The most beautiful picture of that is Joseph, sold into slavery, sold into a prison, taken out of prison, and now all his brothers are there, and he has all this food for them. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. All things work together for good. Therefore, it is our prerogative to give thanks in every situation because God is in control. So I want to close with this. His general will for you, be controlled by the Spirit, by obedience to the Word. Two, don't be unpure, be clean. Three, suffer for doing right, and you will be stronger and better for it. Four, give thanks all times, and in that you're proving your faith and that God is rocking with you. But that still doesn't answer the question, should I marry this person? Are you calling me to Texas? Do I have a ministry in Thailand? That didn't answer the question if I should leave my job and pursue another career field. So what does God really want in my life? Where do I get these answers from? Listen, when, when you're doing step one, step two, step three, and step four, then you can do step five. And step five is found in Psalm 37, Turn there, please. Psalm 37. And verse 4. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what does it mean to desire, to delight in the Lord? It means to walk in obedience. It means to abstain from the world. It means to do good, and even if you have to suffer for it. It means in everything, give thanks. And you remember, when you're giving thanks and when you're walking in the Spirit, remember our test? We're going to be singing psalms and spiritual psalms and hymns, and what is our heart going to be doing? Making melody, what? Unto the Lord. That is delighting in the Lord. Now, when you do that, what's God's promise to you? 
he gives you the desires of your heart. So listen, what is God's specific will for my life? Well, when I'm walking in the Spirit, when I'm sanctified, when I'm suffering for good, and when I'm saying thanks, then anything else I want to do, that's God's will for my life. So if I get excited about going to Texas, that's God's will for my life. If I, if I know without a shadow of a doubt that that person's my spouse, that's God's will for my life. I don't have to go to the mountaintop and, and have God painted in the sky or, or have a voice come down from heaven because, listen, I'm already controlled by the Spirit, already being obedient to the Word of God. I'm already abstaining from the things that are going to cause me down the sinful path. I'm already suffering for doing good, which is proof of my salvation. And I'm giving thanks in all things, trusting Him. When I'm doing all those things, trusting and loving and, and not being sinful and doing the right things, then God says, anything you want, is yours because my desires are not going to be evil because I'm doing step one, two, three, and four. You see that? And here's another thing. As you get closer to God, God changes those desires of your heart so that your desires and his desires align perfectly. And this is the only way that that verse where Jesus says, ask anything in my name according to my will and it will be done to you. That's the only way that verse and that promise works is if step one, two, three, and four are already being taken care of. I'm walking in the spirit saying no to the flesh. I'm giving thanks and I'm suffering for good. After that, anything I want, the Lord says, get after it. I've put that desire in your heart for a reason. Can you see how when you get to that place of Christianity and that experience, how fun and exciting it can become? Because now you're just, you're in it. And the, the Spirit of God is saying, you know, prompting you to go talk to this person or go to that place or go here, and then there's a surprise waiting for you. There's a divine appointment waiting for you. Exciting things happen at this stage. We never rarely get there because we never do step one, two, three, and four. Now here's the beautiful thing. As you're delighting in the Lord and He's giving you the desires of your heart, Look what else is happening. Go down to verse 23. Same chapter, verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he, that's God, delights in his way. And when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Here we have a picture. You're delighting in the Lord, and he's giving you the desires of your heart, and Yet the Lord is right next to you, delighting in you for what you're doing and the path that you're walking. And here's God's promise. As you're doing that and walking with him, even if you were to trip up, you're not going to bash your head against the rocks. Why? Because you're walking hand in hand with the Lord. What is this taking you back to? What is this reminiscent of in the Bible? Even before that, where do we see in the Bible where man and God are walking? The garden. God is trying to take us back to the garden, to paradise, where you and him walk hand in hand in a loving, holy matrimony. What caused the problem in the garden? Sin. It was sin that caused them to be ashamed, it was sin that caused 
that marriage unit to now have problems, and it was sin that caused them to be removed from the garden and to walk with God in the cool of the day. God removes that sin as you're with Christ and as you in your sanctification process are walking in the Spirit, saying no to the flesh, suffering for doing good, and giving thanks. The Lord is walking with you, giving you the desires of his heart in the cool of the day, just like the garden. No stress, no pain, all joy, all love, all good. That's the way God intended it to be. So that circumstantially, no matter what the heck is going on in my life, it does not move me. Because my trust is in the unchanging God. Now, does that make sense? So as we do his general will, the specific will will always fall right out into place. It will always make sense and it will always align with virtue and with God's will as found in scripture. So we do the general will and then all our other questions. Am I supposed to start this business or do this, that, and the other? Do step one through four. The last step will inevitably reveal itself in God's time and it will be perfect because he doesn't fail, me and you do. So it's best we hitch our wagon with him, amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the gathering. Lord, we know God's will. We know it. Be obedient. Say no to the things of the flesh. Do right in the community, even to the point of persecution and spiritual warfare. And no matter how bad it may be, give thanks in all things. Because, Lord, we trust you. And we know that everything is working together for our good. So, Lord, give us a heart by which we can delight in you and give us a walk in which you can give us the desires of our heart. Have your way with this people. And, Lord God, make us useful. In Jesus' name, amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.